Hello, good morning, and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why we all need more Ian McShane in our lives. I'm Frank Spring. With me is Ellie Jacobs, who may yet be remembered as the finest basketball player ever to graduate from Rutgers. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. Thanks to everyone who has listened to our episodes so far, and I'd like to remind you to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or whatever else you use to listen to us. Finally, please be sure to follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in Patrick. In a bit, we'll be joined by our good friend and fellow Truman Project member, Bishop Garrison. Bishop is a straight-up certified badass. Most recently, he was Deputy Foreign Policy Advisor to the presidential campaign of Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton. He's originally from Lexington, South Carolina. He graduated from West Point, then served two tours in Iraq with the U.S. Army's 3rd Cavalry Regiment, the, quote, Brave Rifles, and is the recipient of two Bronze Stars, a Meritorious Service Medal, and a Combat Action Badge. After his time in the Army, he got a degree from the William & Mary School of Law and worked at Deloitte before being offered the position of Director of Constituency Outreach and the Director of Veterans Outreach for Virginia with the Obama-Biden re-election campaign in 2012. Following the election, he worked in several different senior roles throughout the Obama administration, including the Department of Defense, Veterans Affairs, and Homeland Security. Uh, it'll be a great conversation, so uh, stick around. So... We are joined now by our good friend, Bishop Garrison. Bishop, welcome to Taking Ship. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for joining us. So where are you now and why? Sure. Um, I'm here in uh, Washington, D.C. I came back to uh, work for a, a small uh, uh, consulting firm, National Security Consulting. I'm working as their uh, director of strategic initiatives and a senior consultant myself. And uh Along with that, I'm continuing to be uh, trying to be active in the uh, community, um, working with a, uh, a group that works with uh, uh, young people of color, uh, trying to ensure that they have proper pathways to uh, higher education. Uh, so I'm going to they're uh, out in northern Virginia. So I'm going to uh, continue to do that as well as um, working with um, a few other groups and developing uh, messaging around national security in my spare time. Cool. All right. Well, we're going to dive right into kind of some of the current event issues. Um, sure. President Trump just uh, unveiled his budget, and it's widely being panned on both the right and the left and being declared DOA. Um, but one thing that was that kind of caught my eye particularly was he campaigned really hard on the idea that the U.S. doesn't treat veterans properly and doesn't do enough for them. To sure. your mind, what are kind of, you know, three or five or six or 12 things that he really, really needs to do or things that um, uh, Secretary Clinton would have done um, for the VA? Sure. Well, one of the main things that uh, I think the VA has, has had some successes in of recent, but uh, we've even seen in recent articles from former uh, uh, vice chair of the Army, as well as a, uh, a, in a separate article from retired uh military general, uh, uh, Dana Pritter, uh, that talks about veteran suicide. Uh, it continues to be a, uh, a drastic issue, uh, a heartbreaking, uh, issue within our community. And I think, uh, it's not one of those things that money alone is going to fix. You need to ensure that Capitol Hill understands why we're making an investment, uh, in not only simply playing, uh, uh, just playing to the emotions of individuals in terms of, yeah, we everyone says we need to take care of veterans, but you have to have actual um, funded policies and uh, procedures in place, uh, programs that create valid programs that continue to do that. The uh, VA and Dr. Shulkin have been great uh, generally with uh, veteran um, suicide, but it continues to be something that plagues us. So that's one of the first things. Uh, the second thing is uh, ensuring that uh, the Hill, that uh, Congress uh, understands uh, veteran health care uh, a bit more. Uh, when you talk about making um, uh, cuts within a lot of these different uh, programs, not just on the benefit side, and I, I think you'll see a lot of veterans would argue that um, uh, some type of reform to veteran, to, uh, veteran benefits uh, could be helpful. But uh, whenever you're talking about uh, making any adjustments in veterans' health or, uh, or cutting uh, any of the money that we currently spend on it, it's going to be more problematic because, in particular, civilian health care isn't uh, designed 
to take on some of the different very uh, specific care needs. When you talk about TBI, uh, when you talk about uh, veterans dealing with uh, amputations and uh, prosthetics, uh, some of these things, these needs uh, that are very specific in PTSD, of course, they're, uh, they're more specific to the uh, veteran community. So uh, if you're going to have any type of healthcare reform or any type of um, cuts along those lines, you better understand what you're doing before you even think about picking up the knife. And uh, I, my concern is the, the Trump administration is going to look for, uh, for uh, austerity within these particular areas uh, without truly understanding it. Now, one that's not as ve- veteran-based, but it's, it, I think it might be less of a common-sense issue and something that we definitely would not have dealt with or touched, is uh, what you saw in the president's budget yesterday with, uh, with uh, meals for kids. Uh, when they talked about uh, addressing some of the different programs that uh, provide free lunch uh, for children from uh, socioeconomic uh, depressed communities, uh, saying that there have been no tangible benefits. I think that's the way uh, Mick Mulvaney uh, actually articulated during the press conference. Uh, what they well, one, I mean, that's just uh, let's just be honest. That's heartless. Like to say that giving kids uh, free lunch is somehow not in and of itself a benefit when they're not going to class hungry and thinking about how they're going to get their next meal. So that uh, let, I think let's White put House, that I think White House consultant Ebenezer Scrooge would profoundly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like even he would kind of be like, well, I mean, we got some extra gruel back here. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> But, plenty of uh, workhouses, plenty of prisons. What you know? What's the problem? Yeah, exactly. So, put even putting that part of the argument aside for a second, from a national security perspective, it's illogical in the sense that I and I'm, I'm pulling this off the top of my head, but it's something like 71 percent of the uh, what we consider the uh, population or the pool for recruitment into the military service couldn't pass the uh, the basic standards necessary to make it into the military right now. Yeah. So and and we, and the physical standards. And when you say that um, a large pool of these individuals who have um, traditional opportunities to succeed and have solid lives in the military, honestly, a lot of those times they come from socioeconomic depressed areas. So when we're considering uh, that type of issue, and we're only furthering, and we're furthering. Uh, what will hinder their ability to grow, to have healthy and happy lifestyles, we're hurting ourselves from a national security aspect. And it's something that people really don't take into consideration. There's a great group called, uh, that I've uh, uh, done some uh, work with and support in the past called Mission Readiness, who actually uses um, admirals and generals to uh, lobby the Hill to get them to understand more about that type of issue. But I mean, it, it's kind of a it's a very basic thing. Like we need to take care of uh, our kids because, I mean, they're the future of our country and our military. So it, that that's something else. Surprisingly enough, uh, Hillary Clinton would not have touched uh, had uh, uh, we had the opportunity to, uh, to be in the White House. Um, finally, I think one of the main issues you're seeing uh that is, I, I, is flabbergasting to me that uh, continues to kind of uh, – what we're going to see how, how it continues down the road is really North Korea. Like uh, uh, in, invoking language that, it, that would even suggest that we would not stay true to a one-China policy about a month and a half ago was just uh, beyond the pale for me. I mean it, it, it was shocking that we would even think uh, to go after something like that. And then as recent as – uh, yesterday, uh, Secretary Tillerson's comments about uh, and, and the president's tweets this morning um, about uh, a North Korea and how they've played the U.S. for years and how we're going to keep them honest while at the same time uh, eroding the uh, uh, the ally the relationships with our allies that are necessary uh, to keep them honest is I, I, it's a violation of national security uh, studies 101, to be quite frank. Yeah, so, the, the, the problem is, is when you have an administration that watches uh, James Franco and Seth Rogen buddy comedies as documentaries, that's when you run into real problems with North Korea. Exactly. So, and, and I mean, this is, and we're just talking about uh, non-pro and we're talking about, you know, potentials of kinetic activity here. That's not, that's without going into uh, all of the cybersecurity pieces too. 
uh, as they relate to both uh, North Korea and China. So, so yeah, I mean, those are four for you just for, you know, kind of an off-the-cuff start. If we sat here all day, you know, I'm, I'm sure I could come up with about, a, you know, at least a dozen or so more. But, yeah, you, br- you brought up um, the one China policy, and this is kind of going to lead a little bit into what Frank wants to bring up next. But um, let's dig into the one China policy a little bit, because it seems like one of the biggest areas of disagreement. I mean, there, there are so many between where Secretary Clinton was and where Trump is. Um, but this one of the most significant is the policy towards China and the idea that Trump really may realistically start a trade war with them. And that Steve Bannon is convinced within the next 10 years we're going to be at war with China. Um, sure. Do you want to kind of dig into a little bit more about the, what the one China policy idea is, where it came from, and how dangerous it is to uh, uh, violate it or cut it or ignore it? Sure. So um, China sees, uh, particularly uh, Taiwan, they insist that uh, Taiwan and mainland China are a single entity. Uh, that they make up the uh, the one China, uh, China is a is a single country. Uh, Taiwan, on the other hand, uh, ha- does have some level of autonomy with its governor, with its uh, economy, with um, uh, some of its uh, policies and some of its own uh, enforcement of those policies. But ultimately, uh, China sees it as a part of uh, the Chinese government. So, for anyone to question whether or not uh, Taiwan is its own nation is an insult to the Chinese government and to China uh, to China's leadership. So that's where uh, one China comes comes from. Uh, the problem with uh, insulting China on this level is to them they're taking it as infringement on uh, their own uh, self governance um, on their own on their sovereignty as a nation. Uh, and when you have a country like the United States and in, yeah, to start, when you have the United States and we have all of these um, uh, multilateral trade agreements and we have our own uh, direct trade agreements with China, that first is problematic. Uh, second, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, China um, holds a great deal of uh, U.S. debt. So, <laughs> yeah, nearly all of it. I think at this point, and uh, you guys cor- feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I might be out of play here, but I think Japan has a lot of it now too, uh, or still has it. Still maintains quite a bit of it. But I mean, uh, China does have nearly, you know, all of it. They have a ton of uh, of U.S. debt. So it's not. It, we need to be able to work with them from a, a diplomatic, from an economic stance while at the same time holding them accountable. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that China is the uh, best international actor we've uh, seen, you know, in the in the geopolitical sphere for a generation. I mean, that's absurd. China has its own uh, terrible track records with uh, human rights issues, uh, with uh, labor enforcement issues, uh, with and not. I mean, it's a communist nation with that not allowing its people to have. Um, their own true independent voice. So, let, so let's make sure that that is clear. That Bishop Garrison on this morning said that. <laughs> there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Bishop Garrison, avowed Maoist. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, at the same time, we have to be reasonable in the way we conduct um, our own uh, diplomacy. And understanding that China is a superpower in, in the world. And uh, we have to learn how to be able to work with them on issues at the same time holding them accountable is incredibly important. We need to hold them accountable on, uh, as I mentioned before, on cybersecurity. We need to be able to make sure that China can help hold North Korea in check because above all else, North Korea listens to China. But if we continue to kind of uh, poke this uh, uh, political and uh, diplomatic bear, so to speak, in uh, messing with China on things like, oh, well, we're going to rework our uh, bilat- bilateral trade agreements and uh, we're going to continue to question this one China policy, that is going to be problematic for us. And I, to his credit, in, in quotations, since he likes to use quotations, uh, the president did uh, go back and agree to uh, honor the uh, one China policy despite his initial threats back last month. 
but to some degree damage has been done in that relationship and it's a relationship that is always kind of uh, walking on the razor that we need to ensure that we continue to nurture and uh, continue to maintain properly. So that that's where this entire kerfuffle comes from and why it's been problematic so far. Yeah, and, and just uh, to keep our keep our listeners honest, um, Bishop is right. Japan is the largest holder as of now um, of foreign of our debt. China's the second. Ireland is actually the third. So for St. Patrick's Surprising. Day, they're getting a little not. I mean, they have about a quarter of a quarter of what Japan holds, but they yeah. are they are two hundred ninety three billion. Japan's at one point one trillion. Uh, being right on that, can I now say that I am a uh, a, a Asia expert? I, w- I, w- I would say, am I allowed to? Pl- please, everyone know that I'm joking. I, I would never do that at all. I know very little to know. Yeah, I just used all of my Asia knowledge, so we're, well, I'm good to go for the year. Beat us. It was extremely convincing. So, and if any if any of our listeners are uh, graphic design experts, please send us a cartoon of poking the diplomatic bear. Uh, I would love to see. I would love to see an artist rendering of poking the diplomatic bear. So, Bishop, that dovetails really nicely with uh, our, with a conversation that Ellie and I had uh, with Whitney last week about the budget. We talked about kind of what. What this administration thinks the federal budget should be, there's been more coming out about that. We talked about that earlier. Um, But on the subject of kind of playing well in the sandbox with other countries like China, this budget is being sold as a hard power budget at the expense of soft power. And this is the way that they're they're actually talking about it. This is the hard power budget, $54 billion for hard power at the expense of soft power in places like, uh, like the State Department. It's a little reductive, but I think that's fair enough. How, how would and how should hard power practitioners feel about this proposed increase in military spending at the expense of things like uh, the State Department and other traditional soft power centers? Sure. I'll tell you straight up as um, uh, to play the veteran card and the uh, national security card. As a vet myself, I'm, I'm a bit, no, not a bit. I am incredibly concerned and maybe a bit even terrified at the way they've uh, uh, projected uh, the idea that hard power is the way forward for um, a country like the United States and uh, with the the various interests that we have um, across the world and uh, working with our allies. At the end of the day, smart power was developed for a reason. Uh, I, I like to, and I'm, again, like uh, uh, maybe you guys can, uh, can look it up on me. I, I don't remember off the top of my head who actually came up with the idea of uh, uh, the tip of the sphere, uh, uh, spear, excuse me. I think it might have been Churchill, but I'm not positive. But um, the way I look at national security is uh, as a spear. And uh, the tip of that spear is diplomacy. And the, uh, the idea of this, and this is something that Secretary Clinton her, uh, herself used to uh, push quite a bit. And she was one of the uh, uh, early uh, developers and users of the term smart power. Uh, the idea is that you need a, a well balance of uh, soft power, the more uh, diplomatic um, ways of, of uh, de-escalating issues, uh, as well as hard power. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm an old army guy. Like hard power is a necessary entity. It exists for a reason. You need to be prepared uh, for force on force activity, for kinetic activity. And I say that not simply in the idea of uh, fighting terrorism or fighting uh, asymmetric uh, uh, issues, asymmetric warfare. But uh, at the same time, you need to be prepared for what we consider the more the more Cold War condition uh, traditional threat as well. China, as we've mentioned, has not gone away. Neither is North Korea. They have inc- or or Russia for that matter. Uh, these are um, uh, countries that have incredibly uh, large militaries that uh, a that a fight against might look like a more traditional Cold War esque fight that we uh, have grown accustomed to. Uh, within the, the last uh, you know 30 years or so uh, that does I, that says nothing of the likelihood of that type of fight uh, coming forward it only speaks to the idea that you need to be prepared for that instance just in case uh, as well as continuing uh, the fight against terrorism and understanding that uh, the true-to-life nature of uh, future wars might be much more on the uh, asymmetric side uh, whether it's you know guerrilla warfare uh, cyber war, um, war against um, infrastructure and a, a, a multitude of attacks against uh, resiliency, 
uh, in your systems, uh, and it, or some type of hybrid thereof, you know, a kinetic fight alongside of, uh, instead of using artillery to prep the scene, they're going to be using uh, ha- hackers. Uh, th- that might be the type of fight that comes forward, but that's your hard power. Soft power cannot go away. Soft power de-escalates issues. It saves lives. It keeps American troops and our allies safe, and it uh, keeps uh, civilians on the battlefield, uh, people who uh, cannot get away from uh, these various combat zones uh, safe as well. So to think that somehow you're going to have you're going to find yourselves in less conflicts based on solely on the fact that you have now uh, built up uh, hard power, you've built up more ships or more weapon systems is is kind of a farce. And and to go back to our earlier uh, with Ellie, our earlier discussion or uh, comments on the uh, the pop the uh, pool of recruits that you have, you're going to be uh, attempting to fill a military from this hard power aspect with a, a smaller pool of recruits, and you're not doing anything to properly educate them or ensure that they have. Um, uh, the proper health and welfare to become a, uh, a greater population that can actually come and uh, volunteer for the army or the military if they should so choose. Yeah, so, yeah but that, and we're going to have the best educated F-35s in the entire world. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they'll be fed, it, they'll be educated, they'll be well-rested, they'll be big, they'll be strong. I'm telling you, man, it's a, it's yeah, a bold and you're Yeah, and some of these programs that you're cutting on, on a uh, domestic side uh, cost like less than, you know, cost a third of what one F-35 costs. Yeah. One F thirty five is somewhere around one hundred and two million dollars. Yeah, that that actually that sort of leads into the the next question we wanted to raise. Um, there was a report uh, recently in Politico that the planners and some of the generals at the Pentagon are kind of freaking out a little bit about this idea of entering into a situation of mission creep in the Middle East with the way that Trump wants to uh, put a lot more boots on the ground in Iraq and Syria to take on ISIS. Um, mm-hmm. Is there, is there, do they have, who's right? Do we need more guys on the ground there? Does uh, the Pentagon know how to kind of game this out so that it doesn't, you know, defeat ISIS and then leave kind of a, a void that somebody else comes and fills, you know, six months later? Sure. Um, I, I, I'm not going to go down the road uh, of, of who's right per se, uh, just because, you know, I myself as a former. A uh, junior military officer, and now as a uh, as a uh, national security professional, I don't want to you know play Monday yeah. morning quarterback or yeah, anyone yeah. like that. Absolutely, but I, but I will give you uh, my honest thoughts as best I can. Uh, I think uh, you're seeing us caught in a forever war. Um, I'm reading that uh, novel uh, right now. It's an old uh, science fiction novel from the '70s. It basically talked about a war. Uh, with an enemy. It was science fiction based on Vietnam, a war with an enemy, and that war just continued for you know hundreds of, uh, of years just to go and go. Uh, we're seeing our own, you know, on a, a uh, micro level, our own uh, type of conflict like that with what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, and I think mission creep is definitely something that uh, we should all, as a population, be concerned with. We're now we're entering. Uh, we have entered the uh, 16th year of uh, of uh, conflict within the Middle East uh, with um, American boots there on ground. Uh, and moving into Syria, it, for me at least, uh, from my perspective, is problematic. I have friends, uh, many friends, that are still um, in the military that are going to be finding themselves um, in command positions. I, I don't want to admit it, but I am uh, old enough to where one of my friends knows what battalion. Uh, he's going to be commanding, and I went. We were the same year group in school, so um, I, I am concerned from that aspect. We put 500 uh, special operations, uh, um, uh, special operators, excuse me, on ground. What was that? Uh, about like a, going on a year ago uh, in Syria as uh, as advisors. And uh, I can tell you just from my own experiences that when you say advisors, uh, sometimes that advice might come in the shape of a 7.62 millimeter round. Like uh, to think that uh, that doesn't mean or hasn't meant troops on the ground and troops finding themselves in harm's way and in conflict is is uh, naive uh, at best. 
for us now we're sending a, 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 a additional forces over. I think we all should be very concerned about the idea of mission creep and the idea that, uh, you know, kind of like, well, where is it going to end? Like if we're going to continue to have troops uh, in Afghanistan and have some footprint, even though it's been uh, greatly reduced, but to have some footprint in Iraq and now we're continuing more bombings uh, in a, a couple of months than we'd seen in years within Yemen. Uh, and now we're saying, well, we have uh, an interest for kinetic activity in Syria. Where does it end? What I will say is that we have to fi figure out what a comprehensive um, a political and policy strategy looks like around Syria. What do we want to accomplish there? That's another piece of where mission creep comes into play when you don't have clear stated objectives as to what you're actually trying to achieve um, at the end of your mission. Like, wh wh who are you sending there? When are you sending them? How many and why? And is that force, that initial force, enough for you to uh, achieve the goals which you're setting for yourselves and for these units? One of the things you just mentioned there, I want to, sorry, I want to pick up on sure, this. Sure, sure. We just talked about the, uh, you just did a pretty good roundup of some of the conflicts that the Trump administration has, has inherited, many of which were inherited by the Obama administration when they first yeah. came in. Talked mm -hmm. about Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Yemen, uh, now Syria. Uh, let me ask you this. What would you say have been the kind of national security and foreign policy successes of the Obama administration? And what have been some of its limitations and its failures? Well, I think first off in limitations and failures, I think what I just outlined for Syria uh, has been problematic uh, for the United States and for the Obama administration. Uh, we we were never very clear on what exactly we wanted to do, or whether we wanted to get rid of Bashir, or whether, uh, how, how hard we wanted to um, ultimately support uh, the rebels. Uh, I think both of those facts are problematic. I think it goes back to the uh, some of the concerns of the power vacuum. Uh, I, I was there in uh, Iraq the entire time when we were searching for, uh, uh, excuse me, for um, Saddam Hussein and attempting to figure out, you know, like, well, who was in power and, what, and uh, who would who would be the next to, to come into place. And you're talking about countries that have a lot of uh, artificial boundaries that were drawn <laughs> that mm -hmm. didn't necessarily go along with uh, the ethnic territories of what, for the people that actually live there. So you're, you're seeing these these uh, constant uh, issues coming out to uh, play. So uh, first, Syria, I think Syria was a loss. I'll tell you, I think uh, the Iran deal was uh, fantastic. Um, I, it was. It might have had uh, some uh, limitations or shortcomings, but I think for uh, what we were able to do in the amount of time we were able to do it, to bring them to the table and to give them very strict guidelines in terms of um, uh, their ability, their uh, programs and abilities to develop uh, uh, nuclear energy and power versus developing a, a nuclear weapon and assuring that they would not have the ability to develop a nuclear weapon uh, with their generation. I think uh, uh, that should be uh, levied as an achievement. I think it's pretty significant the, that the Trump, admitted, Trump campaign and various Republicans were very critical of the Iran deal during the campaign and since the election, they haven't said a damn thing about it. Exactly. And I mean, and that, that kind of uh, goes back to a lot of that, that. That's kind of, you know, uh, uh, the status quo. They, they want to keep the status quo, but that's kind of uh, uh, their MO, excuse me, on a lot of these different issues to uh, create a lot of bluster and and issues with them during the campaign. And then when it actually comes out to play, they go, oh, well, you know, we'll worry about that later. Maybe that wasn't so bad uh, as we as we thought it was. Uh, so that's something. I would tell you um, another big uh, win for the Obama administration was uh, the full um, uh, uh, same-sex marriage within the uh, military and uh, and uh, addressing uh, don't ask, don't tell. Finally, um, I have um, a I have a close friend from West Point um, who was outed while um, he was in the military. Uh, he was um, an airborne ranger. He was uh, stationed uh, at a very um, let's just say uh, tough um, uh, base. I don't want to, you know, uh, you know, speak uh, to his issues directly. And it, it, your audience can probably uh, find him online, or probably hell, even know him. But um, he was uh, below the zone, promoted to major, uh, which means above all of his, before all of his uh, uh, classmates and colleagues. 
uh, he was promoted to a field grade. I have no doubt in my mind, had he stayed in, he would have been a general. Uh, he was just flying through the ranks. Uh, he served in uh, as a platoon leader in Vicenza, Italy with the 173rd. Like, he was just, you know, all in out uh, a fantastic officer. And uh, he was outed within his unit and uh, subsequently discharged. Uh, and that was uh, that wasn't simply heartbreaking for him, which it was, and it was heartbreaking for our friend, for his friends to see what he had gone through. But it's also just not logical for uh, for your units. And what you talk about the uh, good order and discipline, and you talk about the strength of uh, your units. So you're going to take out a guy who was top of his class in school, who uh did all of these uh fantastic things and had served so well that you promoted him above and beyond everybody else yeah only to turn around and remove him from your ranks it makes no it made no sense yeah so um it, you know uh, i'm sorry go no, ahead. no no i was i was finish your thought because uh, i want to pivot a little bit towards um a hypothetical <laughs> yeah sure 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 so i i would just say uh uh, the Obama administration and uh, working with uh, uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell as well was uh, a, an incredible uh, achievement. And uh, I, that, that might be a good place for a pivot because I, I would even uh, go on to talk about how that relates to um, uh, our current um, uh, political situation and how maybe uh, some Americans felt as though uh, the Obama administration didn't reflect their interests completely. Uh, as well, but I'll, I'll save. I'll stop on that, and you can go ahead. And yeah, take. let's 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 pivot towards the hypothetical of uh, you know, as we mentioned in in, in our uh, introduction for you, uh, you were the deputy foreign uh, policy advisor for uh, Hillary's campaign. So uh, the hypothetical is, uh, had the secretary won, what would kind of the foreign policy, national security policy be right now? What would we be looking at? Kind of how to differ, how it would differ from the Obama administration. And significantly, how it would differ from what Trump is sort of slapping to Trump and Bannon are kind of slapping together right now. Sure. Well, I mean, there's some things that uh, we knew we were going to do right off the boat. Uh, we were going to look to uh, uh, to at how we're going to properly reform the VA. And that was going to be, and we were going to bring actually uh, members of the community uh, in to help us do that, uh, as well as clinicians, as well as policymakers. Excuse me. And uh, the secretary was going to be uh, directly involved and very hands on. Uh, it was going to be something that we did. Uh, I, I would say, um, uh, having been a part of that, say, probably within the first month. Um, I think uh, the president today is meeting with some members of uh, BSOs and uh, uh, alongside the uh, secretary of Veterans Affairs today. So they at least have some ideas up until then. Now it's been Omarosa, I believe. This has been meeting with all of the different um, uh, VSO groups. Boy, this is a surreal timeline. Yeah, <laughs> much the chagrin. So, uh, so that would have been one of the uh, main things we did. I know that uh, there were plans to uh, 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 to re uh, review our nuclear status and look at uh, how we could. Uh, uh, continue to uh, to quite frankly get away from even uh, maintaining nuclear weapons. Uh, I that was going to play um, some part in it. Uh, we were going to look to see how we could uh, continue to strengthen um, our relationships uh, abroad, particularly with NATO and dealing with um, Vladimir Putin and Russia. Uh, and exactly um, what uh, those sanctions looked like, I could tell you we, there would likely have been a strengthening, a strengthening, excuse me, of sanctions against uh, against the Russians. Um, beyond that, uh, I would have to actually look. I'll tell you too that uh, we would have uh, done a thorough um, review of the Pentagon's budget. Uh, that's something that uh, an audit of the Pentagon and additional audit is still incredibly necessary. Um, and we would have looked for uh, the best ways to continue to ensure that the uh, American military is funded, but uh, at the same time ensuring that it is the most uh, flexible and lethal force on the face of the earth and not just the biggest. Uh, and that uh, leth lethality and the uh, ability to um, engage in a multitude of different types of um of missions is uh incredibly important and you don't get that from having x amount of more 
of of anything, whether it's you know uh, aircraft carriers or tanks. That's just not the way uh, the future fight goes. So that so would you're been suggesting that we should spend money by planning on what the what the future is going to look like and building Correct. toward it with some sort of strategy, as opposed to just shoveling money at some departments, taking it from others, and hoping for the, and hoping for the best. Exactly. Like, and when you're talking about cutting are adding $54 billion to its budget. Like, okay, that's a great idea. Exactly what for? Like, what is, yeah. what is this money going towards and what, what are you doing to it? And are you even going to have the the troops necessary to run these different types of new weapon systems? Because right now you don't. So uh, that would have been something that, uh, that we looked into um, on the Homeland Security front, cybersecurity, uh, remains incredibly important. I know you guys know uh, the U.S. Cyber Command now exists on the uh, in the uh, Army, in the military. Um, strengthening um, our uh, our our cyber capabilities within Homeland uh, Security, Homeland Defense was of incredible importance, and in making sure that we're um, continuing to. Um, uh, place uh, new partnerships, new international partnerships uh, with our allies in place to continue to fight against uh, cyber crime and uh, and hacking generally, uh, and then a uh, a robust review of uh, of infrastructure and uh, the needs of the country and uh, what the future of uh, everything from uh, climate to power uh, looks like across the board. Um, you would surprisingly, you would not have seen any type of travel bans. I can say that with uh, uh, with a fair amount of certainty. Uh, I fair amount being a hundred percent. And clearly, unless something actually happened to necessitate a ban or necessitate some type of uh, um, uh, pause. Uh, in immigration, but I can't imagine that you would have ever really truly seen anything like that. Um, well, Bish, I want to yeah. follow up with one thing you just said about some of the cyber stuff, and obviously it's a you know sure. big issue of concern right now. Um, sure. So the Russian hacking scandal and their influence in the election. Um, while the campaign was going on, and this is going to be a couple part questions, so bear with me. Yeah, um, it sounds like it's going to be emotional for me, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the first part is uh, how aware were you and how aware um, of what was going on was the campaign? Um, how could or should have the campaign responded that they didn't? And uh, kind of the big follow-up, and this is something Frank and I have sort of debated a bunch of different ways, is, um, you know, it, President Obama came out and he said that he pulled Putin aside at what, the World Economic, at the G7, G8, whatever it was, and he said, quote, cut it out. And that was yeah. somehow supposed to suffice. Um, how should the White House have responded that would have actually impacted the situation differently? But if you could start kind of with the perspective of being inside the campaign, that'd be that'd be great. Sure. Like if you go back through my uh, Twitter uh, during this time, I I think I was as much as one can screaming at the top of my lungs about what was happening with Russia and the information we were seeing every day um, within the news and the fact that we knew that we had you know. Uh, we'd been hacked and we were working with both uh, DHS, um, having had ties myself to DHS uh, prior to that. Um, I, I knew DHS was uh, working the issue as well as the FBI, like they were taking it very, very, very seriously. So um, we as a campaign were doing everything we could to inform the American people that the United States, not simply the DNC, not uh, Hillary for America, the United States uh, was under attack by was under cyber attack. Sorry, I had to drink a bit. That's that's the um, uh, the first piece to that. Uh, the second, you asked uh, how I felt about the response. Yeah, um, how you felt about it, or what the campaign should have done differently. Um, well, first off, from the uh, the government's response. Uh, I am. I continue to be conflicted and a little appalled at the way things are rolled out. I don't know what was. I'm, I can't speak ill necessarily of any of it because I was not in the room. I don't know what some of the different pressures were. I don't know what some of the ongoing investigations were. That type of stuff. But I will say that I was a little disheartened in the fact that I felt no one in official capacity or few people in official capacity ever came out and ultimately said, we were absolutely attacked. This is horrible. 
um, we need to go against Russia on this. Like, I know you had pundits saying it. I know you had uh, people from Capitol Hill. I think uh, even John McCain, uh, Senator McCain at one point said it himself, uh, in, more or less, uh, in those words. But we didn't have a Comey. We didn't, excuse me, have a, a major official from a DHS actually say it. We didn't say that our campaign had truly been uh, victims of a cyber attack. That that's from a foreign uh, entity, from a foreign by foreign government. Right. So that's the uh, first part of it. I think um, our response uh, as a campaign uh, was incredibly vocal and incredibly uh, concise and to the point and smart. Um, I think a part of what took away from that was some of the content of the emails, just in the sense that they were tabloid fodder. Like people got an opportunity to look inside uh, or look behind the curtain of uh, very senior officials, my bosses, who are having, you know, these various conversations and the juicy details were what they thought about, you know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz or Donna Brazil or, you know, or how they were mad at Jake Tapper about something that he wrote about us versus the fact that we were hacked and attacked by a foreign government. So I I think, unfortunately, a lot of what we were trying to um, relay to the American people, what we were attempting uh, to let them know was was lost on that side. Um, Also, the attack itself was uh, politicized and and partisanship played an incredible uh, role in it. And when uh, WikiLeaks continued to release like my colleagues, my friends, uh, email uh, email addresses and their phone numbers. Um, and they were just being bombarded by everyone from, you know, someone at the, uh, I, I don't know, at the, Ho- at the Hollywood, Florida Gazette uh, to the random person off the street that was just calling them up to yell at them about uh, why, ask them why they hated America. Hey, you, you can't, it's inimaginable trying to actually work in that type of environment and get things properly done at times. So. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of uh, sad on multiple uh, accounts on that, not just in the sense that uh, it played a piece into uh, ultimately the way the uh, uh, campaign rolled out, but, it, but more so to my point as a nonpartisan, as a veteran, as a uh, JD, um, as a former military person, and quite frankly, just simply as an American, it it was morally it was demoralizing that people didn't just clearly see that the United States was attacked. They looked to pin it as a, a content of these ridiculous emails, however they saw fit, but not in the fact that we were attacked by a foreign nation. Sure. So let and that's speaking of of, of shames and disappointments. Uh, let's. Let's. I mean, let, let, this sort of dovetails with a bigger question, which is, and you you alluded to it earlier, uh, so let's get into it now. From your perspective, this was certainly a big piece of what happened uh, in November. From your perspective, what happened in this election, and what can we learn from it, particularly that may have uh, some effect and maybe of of helped the Democratic Party in twenty eighteen and twenty twenty. Sure, I think I kind of alluded to it earlier. Uh, going back for a second to talk about. Um, uh, the positives that the Obama administration did, uh, a lot of um, what they did uh, in support of um, uh, women's rights um, and equal pay of um, uh, the LGBTQ community, of uh, my brother's keeper, young uh, uh, men of color and uh, the uh, African-American um, Latino communities uh, generally, as well as um, uh, science and uh, 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 technology, actually having uh, uh, White House science fairs and everything else, and you know ensuring that we move forward with uh, everything from uh, from uh, pro- proper vaccines to uh, uh, to adequate healthcare for women, all of that stuff that alienated a certain part of our population uh, because during all of this, and I, I wrote a piece in the Hill about it that uh, as we fought to ensure that. Um, a great deal of um, uh, previously underrepresented uh, uh, individuals and groups 
uh, had a proper voice, a proper seat at the table, we kind of lost sight that there was a certain group of Americans who had never, who also didn't have um, a proper seat at the table. And, uh, and that's not just to say that we needed to be helping white men or white people generally, because that's not the case. What I'm really saying is it beca- it, I think it was much more an issue of socioeconomics, that quite frankly, to be blunt, there is a group of poor people in the Rust Belt, in the South, uh, in parts of the Midwest that don't have the that proper representation. And for the uh, most part, um, they are in the they are in similar to the same boats and have been for a generation or two as a lot of the other um, underrepresented uh, groups that are out there. Uh, I can say that I think is a part of, and I think I might be a little more sensitive to it, even though you know I'm African American myself. Grew up in the South, in the deep South in South Carolina. And I know that to simply look at a guy and say, well, yeah, you're a white guy. You have all of this opportunity and privilege is not only is not simply not fair, but not very accurate all the time either. Granted, yes, I'm not trying. I'm not going to sit here and say it may it's it's not easier for a white man to to be able to make something of himself in America than it would be for any uh, any woman of color, any man of color. I'm not I'm not or anyone necessarily is LGBTQ. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, however, is that there's some people that uh, unfortunately a cycle of poverty knows no color. And once you uh, have grown up in it, and if you don't have the proper opportunities to get out of it and to have someone that is your voice to help you get out of it, you will stay locked in it. And that's something I I think that unfortunately we kind of missed. I think that uh, there were opportunities to speak directly to that those or that community, however you want to see it. And uh, we didn't take advantage of those opportunities as much as I would have liked for us to have done. What would have been the right way to have taken advantage of those opportunities, do you think? Um, uh, first off, uh, I think we should have uh, made sure that some of our messengers uh, reflected those uh, those groups a bit more. Um, when you talk about it, particularly like young veterans, when you talk about having uh, young enlisted guys, um, young white enlisted men, honestly, hometown heroes going back to their towns explaining exactly why Hillary Clinton was the right person uh, to represent them. Don't get me wrong, we did have some of them, uh, but I think we could have been much more strategic in um, how, where and how we deployed them. Uh, so that's the first one. I think we should have clearly, as, as anyone with a pulse at this point will tell you, I think we should have spent more time, money, and effort in places like Michigan, uh, like Wisconsin, um, like uh, PA, uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, that would have been a waste of time. <laughs> yeah, the way I understand it, uh, Pennsylvania is kind of uh, split whenever you look at like uh, uh, Pittsburgh and some of the um, more urban areas. And then you, then you go out and look at more, you know, like coal mining country and some of the more rural areas. Uh, we didn't have as big of a foothold in some of those areas as we should have. Uh, and I think that was absolutely problematic. Um uh, yeah, I mean, I think one thing uh, that and is is asked backwards is this is going to sound. I still think that we came across as a, a bit too smart. <laughs> I, I, I think that, uh, and I don't mean in the sense that we should necessarily have dumbed down the message, but to simplify it um, across the board would have been um, better at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, to have you know uh, the simple three button rule and some of the or three, you know, three bullet points uh, about any particular topic, three things for them to take away. So a soccer mom driving or a soccer dad driving down the street can listen to on the radio, think about in 15 seconds and really conceptualize what we're trying to get across and then move forward with his or her day. Um, I don't think we did that as well as we could have or should have. Like uh, Donald Trump was hitting the ground every time uh, he spoke anywhere. First off, he thanked the troops. And and then he, you know, went on a very specific tirade about how we were horrible. Uh, he re- well, it, and again, like I mean, he really kind of um, spoke to some of the the worst in people and pe- and some of 
some people were at a point where they were angry and they wanted, you know how that feeling you get when you are so mad about something and you kind of want to stay mad about it. Uh, I worry that he really fed into some of those feelings. But uh, at the same time, he was keeping his message very clean and clear mm-hmm. um, versus us attempting uh, to speak to people about uh, a very um, uh, difficult policy uh, initiatives and issues that we want to, uh, to move forward with. Uh, and they had, and they were at a point where uh, our the uh, opposition didn't put forward any policy activities. If you looked at uh, some of their different uh, websites and some of the different things they uh, put out, they were absolutely void on specifics. Even now, they still uh, some of the policies they put forward are void of specifics. Uh, whereas you, we literally published a book and put out a book of policies with clear conscientious, uh, well-thought-out points about how we were going to achieve the policies we were putting forward. So um, I I think the happy middle is probably where everyone should have been, like maybe uh, fewer topics, fewer specifics, but ensuring everyone that we were going, we we actually truly um, cared um, about their lives and their livelihoods and what was important to them. And we were going to do our best to represent it. That's not to say that we didn't put that forward, but clearly there was a gap that uh, to some degree, the American people did not hear. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a great point. And it, it, it puts in mind with all respect, I think a, a similar error that occurred within the remain campaign and during the, during the Brexit uh, uh, campaign and, and election in the UK they got a the the Remain campaign got a, a focus group and a series of polling back that saying what voters really wanted was expert opinion on on Brexit what it meant, and so the Remain campaign the people who were campaigning against Brexit uh, went ahead with what the data suggested, and they lined up a series of experts you know academics and and uh, economists and political leaders and all of these people that they thought of as being kind of intellectual leaders, and it went over like a lead balloon because what that actually meant when a voter says they want expert opinion on something, on a complex subject, what they generally mean is we want it expressed in a simple and comprehensible way by someone that we trust. Yeah. And that's, and that, and that I think is a, and it's so hard for progressives that I, and I think HFA fell into this trap a little bit because it's so easy for us. Like we want to have the high end policy discussion. We want to get into it. We, you know, this is, this is where we came in and it's easy to, and it's, you know, it's, it's easy to get into a conversation that has a lot of, you know, as you say, a book's worth of good policy all of which has value and forget that most, that a lot of the time voters don't really want that. They want an acknowledgement of whatever they're feeling. Uh, and then, and to hear about, and to hear about your solution in a simple way from a messenger that they trust. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and that's something that I think, unfortunately we kind of, um, missed the boat on that, uh, we could have been a, a, a bit more focused with and, a uh, a bit more to the point. Yeah. But, uh, it's something that I think, uh, we definitely learn from. And I'll tell you guys now that um, to some degree, parts of this were inevitable. No matter what we did, certain sections of the country, uh, certain uh, voters were just not going to vote for us. Oh, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and uh, and even if we uh, had won, I think in 2020, uh, this these tensions that have been uh, bubbling up and this xenophobia and this misogyny and all these different parts – they were going to erupt in 2020 if they hadn't erupted now. Absolutely. Like this was unfortunately for uh, the most qualified human being in the history of the country to run for the position of president. This was something that was going to happen. That was yeah. going to take place. Uh, and quite frankly, to some degree, I think uh, it needed to. It was cathartic. Like we, we see the ugliness in our society now and people are being vocal and vigilant and addressing it and in fighting against it and we're um we're mobilized and we're even even the probably the best part of this is we're actually becoming informed uh we're taking the time to actually read policies to under when was the last time before this cycle you ever heard about people who weren't uh in dc or directly um affected by an issue reading uh hr Bill, you know what I mean? Like reading bills on the hill and bills on the hill, excuse me, 
or um, or calling their Congress uh, congressional representatives to talk about uh, different issues. Like it, we we weren't an electorate that actually was taking advantage of um, a lot of the freedoms and opportunities that are provided to us. And I think now people are lit on fire, and we yeah. are actually seeing that happen. Yeah, I think this is a really good spot to end this interview. And Bishop, we're going to have to have you back because uh, Frank and I are just starting to kind of scratch the surface on some of the what went wrong and how should we be doing it differently in the future. And you're definitely sure. somebody that we want to have involved in those conversations in the in, in, in the near future. Um, so what we're going to do before we, we before we close this out is we like to do a quick lightning round. Um, four really quick questions. Uh, we'll just start it off. Uh, what's the best book uh, you've read recently or TV show or movie that you've seen? Oh, best book lately, or for any of them? Uh, you know, you can do one of each, or you know, just the one thing of those. You know, form of entertainment. Yeah, sure. I, I two movies. Uh, Hidden Figures uh, was phenomenal. Yeah, that was great. And, uh, yeah, and uh, Arrival. I I thought that was really good too. It's always good to see science fiction uh, get a nod for uh, uh, for for best um, picture. But both of those are involve a lot of uh, good science and. A lot of great in math and a lot of great feelings and very uh, well represented uh, uh, representative of uh, women and uh, a lot of things they've uh, can and have accomplished. So I was really very happy to see that on both. Yeah. Okay. So the second question: um, What's your favorite drink, alcoholic or not? Uh, I tend to drink. Um, I love lemonade, but I tend to drink uh, vodka tonics uh, these <laughs> days if I'm out. Uh, more than anything, don't know why that is. Uh, it's just kind of you're watching your figure. To... Yeah, watching my <laughs> watching my figure. Oh, can I go back for a second? One uh, show, Homeland. Yeah. This season has been amazing. I haven't watched it. Yet. I'm gonna have to start. Please watch. Yeah, I, I I was about to say something about the characters, but if you've watched and you, I, I won't ruin it for anyone that hasn't been watching it. But please go back and watch it. It's been absolutely fantastic. All right. So the third question. Um, as you mentioned, people are really fired up right now, uh, and they really want to do something. Uh, what's one organization you're supporting and why? Oh, uh, that's a good one. Uh, like I said before, um, I volunteer uh, with a group called um, Urban Alliance. Uh, again, they help uh, uh, young people of color that are trying to uh, uh, get into higher education, and they help uh, ensure that they're focused. Uh, so that's uh, one group. But um, I, I, I think they're... Uh, Man, there's so many of them out there. I'm, I'm <laughs> uh, drawing a blank right now. Like, uh, go work for, uh, you know, um, oh, what is the one? Um, Honor flights, flights that uh, help bring together, um, help bring uh, World War II uh, veterans and probably now Korean War veterans uh, to D.C. to go to their monuments and meet oh, with yeah. their, yeah. their uh, former units. I think that one's great. Um, any, anyone that's uh, trying to help with uh, uh, women's health across the board, uh, donate money there, whether it's Planned Parenthood or whomever, Yeah. Um, support them. And then, uh, oh, man, 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 uh, that, Run that, For Something yeah. is a great, too. Uh, run For Something right now. Um, I worked with Ross uh, back when we were at Deloitte together. Wow, it seems like forever ago. But uh, I, they've put together um, a, a great team there, and it's really going to help uh, get us some great uh, uh, some great candidates out there as well. So right. uh, support that too. Awesome. And then uh, final question before we call this out, Frank, the honor is yours. Uh, so Bishop, where for for those who want to hear more of this, and I and and they should, uh, where can people find or follow you? Social media, uh, writing, any of the stuff that you do that people can can follow and track what you're up to. Yeah, sure. I pop up uh, on uh, with writing uh, different points. Like I said, I, I have a few things uh, that are old, but they were on um, a Huffington Post, and then I I had something on a hill. I'll have something uh, coming out with a, a co-author. Uh, here shortly. I'm always on Twitter um, at Bishop Garrison, uh, all one word. Uh, that's the easiest way for uh, for people to find me right now. And when I do write, I'll I always publish a uh, a link or post a link to uh, to my articles there. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, Bishop. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I look forward to uh, to coming back and hopefully. Uh, by that time, we can have a little lighter discussion and really kind of laugh about some things going on versus the way things look right now. Yeah, we live in hope. I want to make sure people just, you know, keep hope, keep fighting. Things are going to get uh, better. All right. All right, cool. Thanks. Thank you, Bishop.
That's our show for this week. Thank you, Frank Spring. Thank you, Bishop Garrison. And thank you, listeners. Please remember to subscribe on iTunes. Stars generously review us. You can do the same on Stitcher, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Importantly, follow us on Twitter at at taking ship, and that's a ship with a P as in paranoid, as in President Trump's obsession over surveillance suggests he's paranoid. All right, Frank, with that, where are we taking ship this week? This week we take ship for Ireland in a total reversal of historical precedent. Today is St. Patrick's Day, a day that some of my Irish and Irish-American friends and I have uh, tended to regard like the vampires and demons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer look at Halloween. We see ourselves in it, but it's a bit gauche, frankly. Today, though, as we recognize the feast day of that island's patron saint, I want to bring up a political reality that is probably not lost in our listeners, but is worth making explicit. The way that this administration and its adherents talk about immigrants from Mexico and Latin America, from the Near East and other places, is indistinguishable from the way that Thomas Nast and his ilk characterized the Irish 150 years ago. It's degrading, dehumanizing, and dangerous. And to his credit, Irish Taoiseach Enda Kenny all but called Trump on it this morning with these words. Ireland came to America because, deprived of liberty, deprived of opportunity, of safety, of even food itself, the Irish believed. And four decades before Lady Liberty lifted her lamp, we were the wretched refuse on the teeming shore. We believed in the shelter of America, in the compassion of America, in the opportunity of America. We came and became Americans. So today, friends, if you want to claim any part of the Irish-American experience, the music, the beer, the endless poetry, you must claim the responsibility of recognizing that if this were 150 years ago, Trump would be building a massive seawall bearing a sign saying no Irish need apply. So friends, happy St. Patrick's Day. We take ship now for Ireland. Ireland.